Note, this is a true crime story. Character dialogues are direct quotations. In an effort to accurately represent sources, some cited opinions are depictions of a past social sentiment and do not represent the beliefs of the content creator. In addition, this contains violent and dark subject matter. Listener discretion advised. That the crime was committed by a person of the Jack the Ripper type is conceded by those who have investigated the case and that a repetition of the crime is likely. Welcome, dear listener, to LA 1909, a true crime podcast uncovering a city's history through a murder mystery. Over the next several episodes, a Los Angeles homicide investigation will be reconstructed using early 20th century records and newspaper articles. The case is that of a young girl, a working-class immigrant's daughter, found murdered, an all-American L.A. sheriff, and a parade of suspects. On today's episode, a city stumbling toward civility is challenged by its wild past. I'm John E. Marino, and this is the Griffith Park Murder Mystery. Episode 1, Little Girl Lost. Los Angeles, California, booming from 100,000 to over 300,000 residents in just the first decade of the 20th century. Each citizen of the greater Los Angeles area could enjoy a metropolitan center packed with opportunity, surrounded by a pastoral dreamscape, or so it was sold. 1850s and 1860s LA had for its size the greatest number of fights, robberies, lynchings, and murders in the whole United States. Each year, the city averaged 10 to 20 times as many homicides as New York. Early historian Charles Dwight Willard asserts Los Angeles was at the time undoubtedly the toughest town in the nation. Northwest of the rugged city, through 10 miles of vineyards, barley fields, and citrus groves. Lonesome and dusty Hollywood began to attract a growing population. Still a far cry from the dense urban landscape it is today, Hollywood and the surrounding region provided rich land and a humble river forming a border between Glendale and the newly donated Griffith Park. The five square mile mountainous urban park just north of East Hollywood. Before the carousel, or observatory, or the Hollywood sign, when Mount Hollywood was still Griffith Peak, the park sat mostly unused and completely untamed. Thursday, May 20th, 1909. Jasper Sheffer and James A. Dewison Employees at the Crystal Springs Water Tunnel head to the southeastern edge of Griffith Park to cut away some mustard scrub. As they move away from the main road, deeper into the weeds, the men begin parting the brush. Sheffer heads to the rear of Vent House Number 1, a brick structure housing one of the water system's vent shafts. 
He bends down to continue his work when he is suddenly disturbed by a dreadful image. A small human figure lying motionless on the ground. He had stumbled upon the body of a young girl. They immediately notify the park officer, who in turn telephones the central police station. When Chief Dishman gets word of the sensational crime, he puts all of his detectives on the case. Though the central station is over 10 miles from the crime scene, the police department recently acquired its first gas automobile. The chief orders coroner Calvin Hartwell and Sheriff William Hamill to the scene. Back at Griffith, the park laborers lead the investigators to the scene of the incident. In the mustard, Hamill and Hartwell spy the girl lying on her side, a slender arm beneath her head. Branches from a nearby elder tree had been torn off and thrown over the body, perhaps an attempt to conceal her. Coroner Hartwell moves in for an examination. The case is the worst I have ever had. During my 35 years of experience, I have never seen anything like it. Her throat was cut with a penknife, evidently. The point of the knife being pierced through the neck. In addition, she was brutally mistreated. And it is probable that all happened before death. A crowd gathers around the body, and the remaining detectives determine that the park employees know nothing of the crime and found the body just by bad luck. Detective Tom Rico, one of the first agents on the case, strongly believes the girl was coaxed into a house. That the murder was likely committed at another location is a belief widely held among officers. The fact that no blood was found where the body was discovered indicates that this is a secondary crime scene. I am looking for my little girl. Attracted by the crowd, a man and his teenage son had driven up. The old man wearily gazes over the brush in the riverbed as Sheriff Hamill approaches the wagon. She has not been home for a few days, and I want her. Your little girl is dead. The teen boy leaps from the wagon, rushing away in the direction of his home. The now completely spiritless man sunken in his seat is John Polterra, a local chicken rancher, living with his family on the east end of Griffith Park, less than a mile from the crime scene. After a long moment, Mr. Polterra reels toward the figment of his baby girl lying in the mustard. Oh, Christ. Have mercy on the soul that could do such a thing. He raises her body from the earth. He recognizes that red sweater 
a present from her brother, Edward. Then, Mr. Polterra notices one of his daughter's hands is tightly clenched shut. He unfolds each finger, one by one. There, grasped in her hand, is the first clue. Dark brown, human hairs. The sheriff quickly intercepts John and guides him away from the crime scene, his head sunken forward, his eyes distant, whispering to himself. John Polterra relates the last movements of his daughter as he knows them. He states the last time he had seen Anna was Monday morning, three days before. He began driving her to school, but stopped because Anna had forgotten her hat. He allowed her to return for it, but admitted that he drove away and she was forced to walk the four miles to the Los Feliz School in East Hollywood, now Los Feliz Elementary. He states, after school on Monday, she did not return. When pressed as to why he was not alarmed, John mentions that given the distant walk on rainy days and other occasions, it was normal for Anna to stay at Mrs. Willard's residence and play with her schoolmates, the Willard children. By Tuesday, however, he learned his daughter had not attended school. Still, not wanting to concern his wife, Mr. Polterra did not raise any alarm. But by Wednesday morning, he was certain something was wrong, so he sent a telegram to the central police station. It apparently had not shown up before the discovery of Anna's body a day later. Satisfied with his story for now, Sheriff Hamill sends Mr. Polterra off to his home and grieving family. If the murderer is caught, there will undoubtedly be a lynching. One look at the determined faces of the men engaged on the hunt is enough to convince the officers that they will never be able to lodge the fiend in jail. Officers' fears of losing a shot at justice are perfectly understandable. Los Angeles has an unfortunate history of lawless hangings. In 1871, the largest recorded mass lynching in American history occurred when a white ranchman was shot and killed in an escalating riot at a Chinatown saloon. Despite efforts by what law enforcement there was, the anger and prejudice of the crowd ran rampant, and by the end of the night, 17 to 20 Chinese Angelinos were hanged by a mob in the heart of downtown Los Angeles. Lawless hangings were so commonplace, partly due to LA's thin and disorganized volunteer police department, still in its infancy in the late 19th century. Back in 1857, Juan Flores and his gang had killed a sheriff and three of his officers. They were captured by a frenzied mob atop Fort Hill, a now-leveled section of downtown L.A. The gang had been tormenting Southern California's citizens from San Luis Obispo to Mexico, and the mob's passions had taken over. They insisted on handling the matter then and there, 
no lawmen, no trial. However, the posse's leader, California and soon-to-be state senator Andres Pico of the respected Pico family, was conflicted by his strong commitment to state justice. Ultimately, though, facing an unwieldy militia with an obvious skepticism toward official law enforcement and believing some order to be better than none, Pico permitted a lynching without a formal trial. In a twisted sense of irony, at the location of the execution, near today's Broadway and Aliso streets, now stands the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department and Hall of Justice. By 1869, Los Angeles would have its first paid police force, consisting of six officers. 1876 saw the introduction of regulation uniforms and badges. By 1900, the LAPD boasted a whopping 70 officers, one for every 1,500 citizens. By the time of Anna Polterra's murder, the LA officers were still all too used to working alongside vigilante sleuths. Back at Griffith Park, once the investigation was underway, men stopped their work in the fields. A number of small manufacturing plants turn out their employees, and dozens of ranchmen and officers comb the neighborhoods of Griffith Park, Glendale, and Tropico for vital clues or the fiend himself. The police have learned that when little Anna Polterra was returning home from school Monday afternoon, she carried with her an empty lunchbox, a newspaper, and her school books, all of which are yet to be found. A short distance from the growing mob, Loring McKay, a Times reporter, knowing every foot of the country intimately, follows a back trail south to the spot where the girl had last been seen, more than half a mile from where her body was found. Keenly creeping down the path, McKay spots a break in the brush. He traces the narrow trail a short distance and comes upon a campsite. Detective Tom Rico of the LAPD relayed the discovery of the camp to the public. We found an empty camp about 100 yards from where the body was found. It evidently was a rendezvous of Yegman, but the fact that but one cup was found in the place leads to the theory that but one man was there. Twelve sticks of dynamite used in blowing saves in a skillet and one pillow were found in the camp. We did not learn of anyone seeing the inhabitant of the camp, and the fact that the murder was committed several days ago would have given the guilty person plenty of opportunity to escape. McKay, the reporter, stumbled over a sack and upon investigating, found that it contained 12 sticks of dynamite. Two had seemed fresh from a store. At that time, safecrackers, or yegmen, would use TNT to breach safes. Remnants of a torn check from the Broadway Bank and Trust Company of Los Angeles were also found, along with two check stubs. On each, scribbled in very shaky hand, was the name Joseph Nazarene. The place looks as if it had been deserted hastily and scattered across the ground, tamale husks. 
Anna's body is brought into Los Angeles to the Pierce Morgue and prepared for internment. Dr. George Campbell performs an autopsy in the presence of Mr. Polterra and the park officer who discovered Anna's body. Three nights and two days she laid in the park before being found. Dr. Campbell notes the girl's garters have been cut away and taken. The assault must have been accomplished by the most degraded of perverts or by an insane man because of the brutality that attended it. The knife had pierced through the neck until the point came through the soft flesh beneath the ear. Two peculiar marks on the body indicate that the fiend stamped his seal upon the victim, a trick peculiar to degenerates of that type. The indentations are believed to be bite marks, or possibly stamped. The semicircular marks on the body were made by a pervert who had read of crimes of a similar nature. Jack the Ripper marked his victims with a cross, others with a circle. Prior to the murder, Anna spoke of having been accosted on her way home from school, once by an old man who gave her an armful of roses and called her his little sweetheart, once by a young man and a third time by a man whom she did not describe. John Clayton Robinson, a 20-year-old black man living on East 34th Street, told neighbors that Monday afternoon, while he was on Sargent Street in the vicinity of Elysian Park, he saw two men dart from a hiding place in the trees and grab a girl who was passing on the road. His sister came to the station and said the boy was demented and a half-wit. Because of this, the police are inclined to doubt his story. Mrs. Chapman, the ranch woman of the vicinity, gave another possible clue. She told the officers that on Wednesday evening, she was walking along the Los Feliz Road near a place where the little girl's body was found. A white boy, about 10 years of age, jumped from the brush at the side of the road and attempted to seize her. A wagon came into sight and the boy turned and fled. Police investigators are inundated with theories of the killer or killers of the little girl. Still, they are certain just one man criminally assaulted and murdered Anna Polterra and agree her body was carried to where it was found. George Valdez, a Mexican laborer, is arrested and taken to the station on suspicion stemming from a clue provided by Martin Baumister, who was the last known person, aside from her killer, to see Anna alive. Baumister, a teamster, had just delivered a load of hay to Ivanhoe when he was returning along the Los Feliz Road. He noticed Anna Polterra at the spot where the road turns into the valley, half a mile from Vent House Number 1. He then saw a Latino man walking a short distance ahead of the girl. The man was evidently a tramp, roughly dressed and carried a small bundle. From time to time, he looked back toward the girl. It was thought Valdez was the right man, as spots on his clothing looked like bloodstains. But upon investigation, he explained his movements in a matter to satisfy the police, and it was found that he had no connection with the case. Detective Tom Rico 
who has been at work on the case since the finding of the body, stated that the case was as much of a mystery as at the time the body was discovered. We have run down every possible clue and have not found one that is plausible. The case rests just as it did at first, but we will continue to work. Officers and ranchers today will search every foot of brush on both sides of the road, along the entire course from the school to the vent house number one, in search of the spot where the assault was committed. The Polterra girl carried a little brown lunchbox and some books at the time of her disappearance, and these are eagerly sought by the sheriff and his investigators. I am offering a personal reward of $250 for the capture and conviction of the man who killed Miss Polterra. Funeral services in memory of Anna Polterra, aged nine years old, will be held at Pierce Brothers Chapel, 8th and Flower Streets today, May 22nd at 1.30 p.m. Anna's former schoolmates gathered at the chapel of Pierce Brothers for the service. Beside her small white coffin, her father and 16-year-old half-brother Edward stand, hands clasped. They've sworn to use what little savings they have to hunt the fiend that took their little Anna. Mary, Anna's mother, softly cries to herself. Likewise, John sits petrified, occasionally moving his lips as if hoping to speak or pray. But Edward makes no secret of his misery. As eight of Anna's schoolmates carry Anna's small white casket, John Polterra's eyes brim with tears. He wets his lips and raises his calloused hands to shield his eyes. Suddenly, emotionally overcome, Edward tosses himself onto his sister's grave, crying out, and mourning violently. Fearing a nervous breakdown, his friends quickly lead him away from the burial. He remains unmanageable and hysterical until well after the service is finished. Anna's burial site sat adorned with magnificent floral offerings, much more than was to be expected for a rancher's daughter. Many of the arrangements were not from friends or even acquaintances of the family but from sympathetic souls, struck with unyielding pity. On that day, in May of 1909, Anna Polterra's resting place in Rosedale Cemetery was one of the most loved and considered sites in all of Los Angeles. Sweet sleep, come to me underneath this tree. Do father, mother, weep? Where can Lyca sleep? Lost in desert wild is your little child. How can Lyca sleep if her mother weep? The little girl lost. <laughs> Next time on L.A. 1909. Children to aid in search. 
Several suspects have been questioned closely and made to give in detail their movements since the day of the murder. I warn every parent to keep strict watch on their children. The man who murdered Anna Polterra is still in the vicinity of Los Angeles, and I should not be surprised if he is heard from again. LA 1909 is an independent podcast, written, directed, performed, and produced by John E. Marino. To support the podcast, please follow the link in the show notes. It also helps to comment, rate, and subscribe wherever you are listening. And follow our Instagram at Los Angeles Mysteries. Music, courtesy of Project Gutenberg Audio. Piano rolls by Scott Joplin and Claude Debussy. Other music performed by John E. Marino.